0: Welcome to Soft Robots Podcast. Uh, could you please introduce yourself?
1: Hi, I'm Gary Marcus. I'm the CEO of, and founder of Robust AI, author of the book Rebooting AI, and a uh, professor emeritus at NYU. Mm-hmm. So,
0: um, I would like to go first. When you were a kid, um, what's robots or intelligence system was resonating to you, or your imagination to lead, make you uh, become interested in this field?
1: interested in this field I guess almost my whole life I mean mm-hmm. I I watched science fiction as a child I learned to program computers when I was eight on a kind of simulated paper computer um and that very day I explained on television how it worked and I guess mm-hmm. um a lot of my future was born in that one, one day of, of being interested in computers and what they could do and also explaining uh, to other people what those parameters are, um, and, you know, what, what their strengths and weaknesses are. Um, and then I spent studying human intelligence and eventually came back to artificial intelligence after mm-hmm. spending I spent several years. On AI as a teenager. Um, In fact, I never finished high school, I went straight to college and that was what allowed me to go to college early was an AI project I had doing language translation. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I set the AI aside for a long time because I thought it wasn't very good and that we needed to understand humans better and so I spent most of my career studying humans and then in the last almost decade um, I focused on what knowing about humans can help can do to help us to better build ai and also to better understand the limits of current ai mm-hmm.
0: so if i ask you how how you would define a robot from your experience and also the ai system in, in this context how you could define it
1: I'm actually not big on definitions. Mm -hmm. I I think that 20th century philosophy taught us how hard it is to define even something like a board game or or let's say game um, was Wittgenstein's famous example. There's always a lot of exceptions. Um, Even describing a chair is difficult. Um, And so I don't think we should expect that we're going to be able to give precise definitions either for a robot or for artificial intelligence. And I think the problem is even worse because natural intelligence is a very complicated and broad thing. So um, intelligence can range from the stuff you do when you play a board game like chess to social intelligence and how you figure out what other people might want and how to please them um, or how to manipulate many aspects of intelligence. Um, and even natural intelligence is hard to define. And I think nobody's defined it in a completely satisfactory way. So then you get to artificial intelligence and it's even harder. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a famous line about pornography I know it when I see it. And I, I feel a bit that way about AI. <laughs> I know it when I see it. There's a lot of techniques that are used um, with a robot, like strictly speaking. I would say that a driverless car is a robot, but it doesn't look like, you know, a Roomba, which is a totally different kind of robot, and it doesn't look like C-3PO from Star Wars. So, you know, roughly speaking, a robot is an autonomous uh, device with intelligence, but it's hard to give perfect definitions.
0: Mm -hmm. But uh, do you think that since you were studying cognitive science and human reasoning, do you think that human brain is not the most intelligent thing to be replicated or to be studied? from your experience in cognitive science?
1: Well, this, there's a first thing I'd say there is, is a very big difference between replicating and trying to learn from it. So, you know, we don't replicate birds when we fly, but we tried to learn something about them mm-hmm. um, that helped us in build airplanes, and in fact, may continue to help us build airplanes when we figure out better materials and so forth. Um, mine is the only kind of cognitive system that can understand language there is no other system there's no animal that really does and there's certainly no ai system and so if you want to understand what makes it possible to learn language as an example you want to how a human being manages to accomplish that um, that doesn't mean that ultimately our best ai systems are going to replicate replicate humans but we want to learn from humans and how they manage to do some pretty impressive things like language like reasoning about um, worlds that we don't fully understand that are, where we have incomplete knowledge partial knowledge and humans are very good at making good guesses in circumstances where we don't have complete information
0: mm-hmm. so if I ask you what you think of most misconceptions uh, about artificial intelligence and robotics when it comes to the sense since you have been studying this aspect what could be the most you can uh, see? Um,
1: I think the biggest one, which is starting to change, is that in the years from about 2012 to 2015, people were really excited about deep learning. and There were articles in the media all the time about how deep learning was going to basically solve artificial intelligence. And there were a lot of promises about things that people thought they could build that they couldn't really. So. People promised that they would build chatbots that would understand everything that you say. They promised they would build driverless cars that would be safe. Mm. And so the media was so full, people in business started to believe it. A lot of people in the lay public started to believe it. And um, there was a misconception that artificial intelligence was imminent. And then people got excited about, well, does that mean that they're going to kill us all? And that's ridiculous. I mean, artificial intelligence is not actually imminent, not not in a grand way of, like, human-level intelligence. Yeah, we've, we've had chess computers that could be human beings since 1997, what we call narrow intelligence, but nowhere near to having broad intelligence. And I think there's starting to be some recognition of that in the last year or so, that this was oversold and overhyped, but it was a tremendous amount of hype in the decade uh, that started in 2010.
0: Mm-hmm. So if I ask you about artificial general intelligence, because there are still some promises that we can reach this level one day, for example, Singularity Net and, and the example of decentralized AI services and AGI token, do you think this makes sense or maybe it's far away from what we have, realistically speaking, uh, in the field?
1: I mean, anything like human level intelligence is pretty far away. Mm-hmm. It's at least 20 years away, could be a hundred years away. I really tell because we're far enough away that we can't do it with any of the technology we have now. We don't need what, we don't know what needs to be invented. I mean, I have some guesses, but we really don't know what needs to be invented to get to anything like what people call a singularity. I also think that it's a misleading notion because it makes it sound like dimensional variable, like a single number. the reality is that many things go into intelligence as i said before and so you know we have machines that exceed people on some of those dimensions like chess and we have machines that lag very far behind human beings on other dimensions like understanding what happens in a story and there won't be one day in which it all kind of simultaneously changes there'll be incremental advances in many different uh dimensions for a long time Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so i'm not saying that it's impossible that we will ever have machines that are as smart as humans in in a kind of broad way. I think it's certainly physically possible, but it's going to require advances that that we don't even really understand yet.
0: Mm -hmm. So if we speak about the the shape of the artificial intelligence should be to that one day can be human-level AI, you use second idea of hybrid model. um, And I would like to ask you, in terms of the computation power and having that a reality, do you, what do you think could be the complexity behind achieving this level?
1: Uh, well, I guess there's a, cu- a couple of different questions. I mean, first is, like, why do I think that we even need hybrid architectures and what does that mean? And the analogy I like to make is a lot of people know Danny Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, and there Kahneman makes a rough distinction between two different systems, one of which works by reflex and is very quick um very statistically driven and the other is more deliberative it does more like the reasoning that we expect in law or philosophy and it seems like the human brain does both of those and those two systems have different advantages and different disadvantages sometimes they fight with one another but they give give us a lot of breadth by having these two systems that balance one another. And I think our AI systems need to do that. But right now, most of the work has been on deep learning, which is more on the reflexive side. Um, classical artificial intelligence was more on the deliberative side. And I think we need to bring those things together if we're to have any hope of having systems that have the breadth of human beings. Now, what does that mean complexity-wise? I mean, you could be asking that in a technical term, in terms of you know apparatus people have used to talk about complexity, and I'm I'm not sure it fundamentally changes that because both classical and deep learning systems, in principle, if you give them infinite data, can do various kinds of things. Um, But I think it changes the reality of what you can actually do. An analogy might be Roman numerals and Arabic numerals both represent the same things, but it's very hard to do long division in Roman numerals. It's much easier to do it in uh, numerals sometimes you can have two systems that are at least some logical level equivalent um, but you know are actually vastly more practical and I think hybrid systems are gonna be vastly more practical for dealing with the real world and I'll give you just one simple example um, which is how do you learn what a zebra is so a deep learning system would see, need to see lots and lots of pictures of zebras um, and if I told you that a zebra is a horse with stripes, then you'd want to know what a horse looks like. Well, deep learning system is good at that, and symbolic natural language is good at telling you what a horse with stripes might look like. We want to have something that can do that, where I can tell you, if you already know what a horse is, that a zebra is a horse with stripes, and then you immediately get it. And then, you know, don't need lots and lots of data in order to understand that.
0: Mm-hmm. But do you think that one day we can reach level that we can learn from few data sets uh, like human being? And what's really interesting about enitism, when in reality that's happened to a child or even animals. So how, how's this concept, do you think, really incorporated uh, in the current technologies, uh, deployed algorithms, for example?
1: Well, I, th- I think one of the fundamental differences between humans or human children, let's say in AI systems children have some prior understanding of the world that comes to them from biology, what we call it, an innate understanding of the world. They don't understand everything. Kids learn a lot in the first couple of years of life, but I think that they're born knowing, for example, that there are objects that objects persist in time, that there are entities um, that can move around on their own and so forth. And that helps them to organize the knowledge that's coming in. And the dominant paradigm in AI right now is just learn everything from scratch, not even have a notion of an object that persists in time. And I think if you have no prior notion at all, then all you wind up doing is accumulating a lot of statistics that never has enough depth um, to really deal with the real world. Over a billion years, nature has given us genomes that build brains, rough drafts of brains that work pretty well.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's not captured in the current approaches.
0: Yeah. So we have some questions from the machine learning community. One of the questions say that what do you think or what your views about recent advancement of symbolic reasoning, which is, isn't neural networks with different uh, customized architecture? And he said that a lot of work on pure symbolic reasoning is quite old, and a lot of initial neural network was done well ago, but has been a great advancement recently uh, to more data and more computing power, while symbolic reasoning seems seem somewhat stuck with many recent advances. I don't know what you think about this question. So.
1: What I would say is, most of the classic work in symbolic reasoning was done a long time ago it's not an active field right now most money is going and most research effort is going into deep learning um sure that deep learning has done such a good job Mm -hmm. of the stuff that the classical ai did well so You know, my favorite example of this is people are very enthusiastic about a system called GPT 2. Um, What GPT 2 does, as you probably know, um, and some of your listeners, but maybe not all will know, is it takes in, they've probably seen it even if they don't know it by name, it takes in a set of sentences. Well, first it's trained on a vast database of human language um, taken from the web. And then in any given moment, what you do is you feed in some sentences and then it continues those sentences. So you tell it a little story and it gives you something that seems consistent with that story. Um, and people have been very excited about it. It's very grammatical. Um, when OpenAI released it, they said it's too dangerous, or, or when they first publicized it, said it's too dangerous to release to the world. And then a lot of media coverage and so forth. It's not actually that dangerous because it's actually dumb. Um, it gives the appearance of being interested But only if you sort through all the things it says to find the good stuff. Um, The Economist actually did this. They had an interview with GPT-2 that made GPT-2 look brilliant. But what they didn't tell you was that every answer that they picked had four that they left behind. So they they cherry-picked the answers and they made it look smarter than this. Um, So I went and built a benchmark or pilot of a benchmark in December. um, Looking at does understand what happens over time. I gave very simple questions like um, if there are two trophies on the bookshelf and I add another, how many trophies are there? Well, that's trivial for any human being that there are three, but this system just knows that there's a number there and has no idea what the number should be. Um, it's not actually tracking individual entities over time. Or right? I say, you know, Amy, Betty, and Charlie walked in the room, Amy and Betty left, who's, who's still there? Any human can say Charlie, but the system just can't do that. Um, so they're not actually doing symbolic reasoning at all well there there's one system um, that does some uh, calculus by Facebook that a bunch of people talked about recently, but my friend Ernie Davis pretty much tore that paper apart in um, something that's on archive, uh, A-R-X-I-V, on the paper by Lample and Chardon. It turns out that they had an enormous database. The system can only really work within the parameters of that database. Um, And it's relying a lot on symbolic reasoning that's been done um, by other people over a long period of time. And so it's not the robust solution that it looks like it's not really going to work for language. It's kind of an acute demonstration of something, but it's not a real solution.
0: Mm-hmm. So if you can clarify more because there's people who want to know what could be the symbolic reasoning contribution uh, to neural network approaches, what could be the significance contribution?
1: So what we need symbolic reasoning for is for dealing with abstraction. Mm-hmm. So if, if I tell you that, um, I don't know, a cup can can hold things then you can generalize that and realize that you know it might hold um, pennies it might hold quarters i might be able to put water in it if i tell you that it'll hold things unless you flip it over then you can infer that if i flip over the cup then the pennies might fall out or the water might fall out so you know something at some level of abstraction the deep learning systems just don't really do that um, my favorite example of this is there's a very popular deep learning system that learned to play Atari games and learned to play Breakout. And there was a video on the web circulating about how it learned to break through the wall and um, do this ricochet maneuver and it looked very intelligent. And then somebody else uh, that was from DeepMind then the team from Vicarious came and showed that if you just move the paddle on the video game up a few pixels, the whole thing broke down. So it was learned it was really, really superficial and where symbols can help us is in representing things at a greater level of abstraction so representing what a sister is or um what a chair is for or how a cup works how a container works. Mm -hmm. the current systems just don't do that at all classical systems allow us a way in principle to reason about that i have an article that came out um a month or so ago Uh, called uh, The Next Decade in AI. And I go through an example there from a system called Psych and show how it's able to reason about Romeo and Juliet and kind of like why Juliet is doing the things that she's doing involving taking potions that are going to put her to sleep but make her appear to be dead and so forth. And there's just no deep learning approach to that at all. But classical AI, in the best case circumstance, can do it. Now it's not always the best case circumstance. So, in that particular case, the people who built the system called Psych pre-wired a whole lot of stuff. And what we really need is a mixture of the resourcefulness in reasoning that classical systems have with the learning capacities of the currently popular machine learning techniques. Mm-hmm. And so. What we need doesn't quite exist yet, but what classical AI is going to contribute is ways of representing and reasoning over complex abstract knowledge.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, I would like to ask you about uh, black box and AI, and and that's that's something I, I'm curious to know about. Which level of understanding? To which level we have to understand physical system? Because we can see some um, report on news that we can use a system to fit certain problem, which. At certain point, we don't understand the physics behind happening. So, first of all, to which level do you think we have to have a level of understanding when we deploy black box AI for certain problem or application, like a driving car or medical uh, situation? So, if somebody...
1: There are a couple of things there. Um, the real reason that black boxes are problematic is not that... We couldn't live with a black box. It's that we can't live with a black box that we can't trust, and that we can't fix a black box that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're a black box, but I can tell that you know what you're talking about. Um, I can tell that when you ask new questions that respond to my earlier questions um, and so forth. And, you know, I'm, I'm not demanding that I won't let anybody interview me who is a black box, right? I'm not mm. saying I won't let you interview me unless I can look inside your brain and understand, you know, which neural assemblies correspond to which. Um, so in principle, you know, we deal with black boxes all the time, namely other human beings, um, other human beings, to some extent, you can interrogate them and I could ask you, why did you ask this question? And so forth. We'd like to have some of that ability. Um, the real problem is if you take a black box model to drive, for example, it's going to make mistakes and then you're not going to know how to fix them. If, if you don't understand what's inside the box, um, if you could build a black box model that was perfect, we have no reason to think that you could, then maybe that would be okay. Um, you know, To some extent, we trust our lives on the roads every day mm-hmm. um, to other drivers. We don't ha- have access to them internally, but we we trust that we've seen a lot of other drivers that do reasonable things and so forth. The problem with the driverless cars we have now is they don't do reasonable things. You know, they, they work for a thousand hours, but they really don't work reliably for a million. Um, and so, one issue is reliability. The other is debugging. Um, if you got a black box and it doesn't work, what do you do about it? And so what's happening in the driverless car industry is things don't work. They try to get into a training set, but there's no great methodology to say, I'll fix it in the way that you could fix like a car engine or something like that, where the internals are extremely well understood. And so you can debug, you know from experience that given this kind of error, I should make this adjustment to the timing chain or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm. So I would like to ask you because Jeffrey Hinton said that suppose you have uh, cancer and you have to choose between black box AI surgeon that can't explain how it's worked but has 90% acute rate and a human surgeon with an 80% acute rate uh, and sure. this was controversial I, I would like to know what your response to this uh, statement I
1: actually put something on Twitter which, uh, in response to it mm-hmm. um, I can't remember exactly what I said but r- roughly what I said is I'd want to know more You know, what are the cases where the machine actually is better than people? How robust is it? So, you know, a A.I. diagnosis system that was made four months ago would have no idea what to do about COVID um, because there was no data on it. And so, you know, black box systems tend to be very poor in rare circumstances and I wouldn't trust them in rare circumstances. If it's something run in the mill and there's an enormous amount of data, maybe it's okay. But I, I thought his, his premise kind of oversimplified the reality. The reality is you you want to know what are the kinds of places where these errors are made for the machine and the human. Maybe what you really want is actually some kind of hybrid between the the person and the machine. So you could say, I'll let the machine do these cases, but I want a human to be on standby in case something outside of the range of the specialization of the machine is there. Most real world cases right now, not all, um, tend to be ones where a human machine uh, hybrid or You know, a joint production of human and machine are actually better. Radiology, at least as of a few months ago, was done by human-machine hybrids. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, his premise is a little bit make-believe and a little bit underspecified. It's still an interesting question, but in the real world, if it was me, I was getting the surgery, I'd want to know a lot more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um, I would like to ask you about robots designed to feel pain um, and that's I think interesting concept about you said about physical reasoning and psychological reasoning so what do you think of kind of this research to design a robot to feel pain or emotions do you think this hoax or we still far to understand what is really emotion or psychological reasoning as well
1: I don't think we need robots to feel pain. Mm -hmm. I think we need to have them understand human pain in order to make reasonable decisions about humans and to understand people's motivations. So, you know, if you were watching a movie and the, um, the bad guys are torturing the good guy, um, you, know, you want to understand why torture might lead even a good person to give up information that they don't want to give up and so, and so forth. So if you're going to reason about people, you have to understand pain. Um, I think there are more direct and efficient ways to get robots to do what you want to do without having to go through that route.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have a question uh, again about Someone said that, uh, I feel that current deep learning methods are more memorizing uh, pattern than learning from them. And from personal experience, uh, he said, that this will not be fair well when new situations are presented. He asking you, do you feel that with current technology deep learning, that startup can build application, can be scaled without having resources of Google, Amazon, and Facebook?
1: Um, Well, there's two things in there. Um, The the first is I totally agree. these the systems come closer to memorizing things than understanding them at a deep level. Strictly speaking, they learn. That's all they do is, is, is a form of learning. But the learning they do is superficial. A lot of it comes close to either memorizing things or then interpolating between cases that you've seen before. It's not good at extrapolating to things that it hasn't seen before. Um, and that's the Achilles heel of, of these systems. I've written a lot about that over the years. Um, and that's why with language, they can't really be trusted. If, if you do something that's very close to a sentence it's seen before in a context that's seen before it might be fine. If it's a new context, it might not have any idea what's going on. Um, and that makes the systems fundamentally untrustworthy, except on problems that are very much the same over time. So you know, the game of chess, the rules never change. And so um, these techniques are reasonably amenable to that. The real world changes constantly. They're not very good for that. Um, that, that was the first part of the question or comment mm-hmm. there. The second part is about, can the little guy, so to speak, um, use these techniques or do you need Google-sized data? And it depends on the problem, but often you need the kind of data that Google has and these techniques are better, um, You know, are going to produce better results in the hands of a Google or Facebook or Amazon that has a massive amount of data than they are in the hands of some small company.
0: Mm-hmm. So I think that's, again, about, do you think that decentralized AI could be an option in that case? Or what could be a... Decentralized AI? Yeah. I don't
1: really know exactly what that means. I mean, I I think that we do want to decentralize the power. We don't want, you know, Mm. three companies controlling the whole world. Um, I guess you could say that humanity is a kind of decentralized AI, natural intelligence, where there's intelligence distributed all around and you know that works reasonably well but not perfectly um you know we've seen in the current crisis that there were people that saw what was likely to happen but they weren't listened to and so you know the the some parts of the system recognized that there was a crisis but couldn't get the people in power to really do anything about it until you know lost a lot of lives um so you know Decentralization can mean you've got the right cognitive stuff going on somewhere, but you want some kind of centralized system to be able to optimally use that information. Um, humanity has not done a great job of that. Maybe we can build AI systems that will do it better.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if I ask you what is the biggest discrepancy between engineering problem present in autonomy or pro robotics and the work that's being done in academia and research groups?
1: Well, I mean, academia is a part of the real world, but I, I think that what people get rewarded for in the academy mm-hmm. in the robotics is some demonstration of something that works once in some optimal condition. So, um, and the industry does this sometimes too. You know, you build a robot that can do a backflip when everything is perfect, um, and that doesn't translate to the real world where where things typically aren't perfect. So, people in the academy are kind of like marking territory. They're saying, "I was the first person to solve this problem," mm-hmm. and when you do something commercially, it has to work, you know, most of the time or reliably. Think about driverless cars. It began as an academic project, and or at least lar- largely academic. I guess there's some government issues of various sort. Um, and it's easy to build a proof of concept of a driverless car a lot of people have done it probably 50 teams have done it over the last five decades um or four decades Mm -hmm. Uh, but none of them are good enough in the real world that we can actually trust them so it's one thing so that i can drive on a highway in ordinary weather it's another thing to be able to drive in manhattan on a busy day Mm -hmm. and The Academy mostly doesn't reward people for engineering things to a really high level of reliability. But robotics are not going to be practical in the real world um, outside of certain kinds of situations like factories until they are highly reliable in the real world. And Mm -hmm. neither the Academy nor... Industries really solved that problem yet. My own company is trying to work on that problem. We um, uh, co-founded a company with Rodney Brooks and some other people yeah. um, called Robust AI. And we are certainly very interested in trying to find ways of building commercially uh, reliable applications for robotics that really haven't been built before.
0: Mm-hmm. So if I ask you how we can make sure the developed robotics is going to be beneficial to humanities, well, how we can make sure this would happen.
1: Well, I mean, I think the current situation shows that, that we really wish robotics were further along. I mean, you know, it'd be great, for example, to have robots doing door-to-door package delivery right now instead of, you know, having uh, people work for Amazon for not that much money and, and you know, be doing something kind of risky. Um, so you know, it's a- amply clear that we would like um And, you know, robot would be great right now if we had a robot that could put a ventilator in a person. We're nowhere near that level of robotic surgery, Um, but it would sure help the world right now. It would save a lot of doctors and probably a lot of patients, too, um, if if robots could do these things. So the last couple of months have been a wake-up call for how much more robotics could do for us in principle and how far away we are from really using robots uh, practically in the field in situations other than like pick and place in a warehouse. Mm
0: -hmm. So I would like to ask you about designing uh, AI algorithms, do you think that we can come up with something completely different from hybrid model, more advanced, or something because if we just looking as an abstraction for human brain, do you think there's something more beyond that, if you imagine?
1: Well, I think that, um, let me see how to put it, Minsky had a book called Society of Mind, um, or possibly Minds, I forget it's plural. Um, And the idea is that we have many different agents within our brain that are specialized for particular tasks. Some of them are the product of evolution. Some of them are learned by experience. I think Minsky was roughly right about that. I don't know about the details of the book. It was an unusual book. Um, But... We have to have a lot of different systems working together. So to say that a system needs to be hybrid is part of it. In my essay, The Next Decade, I actually talk about four things, and hybrid models is just one of them. I also talk about knowledge, I talk about reasoning, and I talk about cognitive models um, that give us a rich understanding of the things around us in the world. We need all of that. We need this countless details that have to be set right you know why does it take a kid until you know they're 18 years old to do a whole bunch of different things in the world it's because there are a lot of individual things we need to learn Um, and even if there's some innate basis for each of those things, there's a lot of detail there. So, you know, we might have some innate basis for psychology and and understanding other people, but we spend years observing other people so that we um, have a good understanding of what they're gonna do in different kinds of contexts. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I don't expect a shortcut to AI. It's not like, well, put it a different There are some people that are looking for AI to be solved by one magic equation that's going to rule them all. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's wildly unrealistic. I think there are many individual problems that need to be solved in image recognition, capturing um, our knowledge about the real world and our knowledge about how other people behave and so forth and so on. It's a lot of different things. And expecting that the one equation is going to solve it is ridiculous. Um, you know, with airplanes, there there is an equation um, about lift and drag and so forth, but that doesn't magically make the problem of building a good engine go away.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's impressive AI in existence today, and maybe the worst, for, from your opinion, and why? When you see this kind of application for um, AI.
1: I mean, there's many applications. I, I think this would be like saying, "What's the best and worst application of a yeah. computer?" Right. I mean, there's there's a vast array of things that you can do in AI, and you know, what counts as impressive depends on how you think about the problem. I mean, like I could say that one of the most impressive things is um, the AlphaGo system, which plays mm-hmm. Go, you know, very very well. And Go is a difficult problem, um, but it's so narrow that you know, okay, it's impressive that the mm-hmm. team did it but it's not actually solving the problems in ai that i care about in fact there's nothing that solves the problems in ai that i care about which are really about how you get machines to understand human language there's just there's not been that much progress there so there's nothing that wildly impresses me on that set of problems Um, Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of things that are kind of like technological tour de forces it's amazing they got this thing to work but there are very few things that feel to me like real progress towards a broad intelligence that would be like the Star Trek computer that could take whatever question you ask and, and come up with, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of synthesize the world's information on that topic. There's nothing that really does that. So, you know, I'm, in, I'm impressed and not impressed. Of course, there's lots of um, really unpleasant, stupid, or you know, stupid, but um, almost immoral uses where people don't really understand mm. the strengths and limits of the AI and misapply it and wind up with a lot of bias and things like you know, job decisions or yeah. prison sentencing decisions and so forth. Um, where people apply AI to problems that have some sort of political element to it and do it in a very naive way. So I mean maybe those are the things that most negatively impress me probably there. But you, then?
0: Yeah, but do you think it comes down to the high uh, and it could be also endanger our community because of the hype and the bias. How much do you see this percentage affecting in, in actual work done for advancing uh, the current uh, technologies? How much do you see this endanger us?
1: I mean, the thing I worry about is having another AI winter. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there've been a few periods where ai was incredibly hyped it didn't live up to the expectations and then funding disappeared for years and years and the field stalled and people didn't even want to admit that they did ai if they did um, and i think we could wind up there because things have been so overhyped and you know investors are already starting to be skeptical and you know, some of the funding that's been there for ai lately might disappear um, unless the results are better. And I don't think we'll get better results unless we start looking at a broader range of models and not just sort of using the tools that we have now. I think, I think we need to um, develop a, a broader set of tools um, if we want to keep AI in business.
0: Mm-hmm. So coming to business, because we heard that StarSky Robotics already stopped uh, their activity, and it was a lesson mm-hmm. for using AI in the in industry sector. So if I ask you firstly, what makes robotics or AI company successful? From your experience, because he had this experience.
1: Well, I mean, he actually wrote a great essay. In one of the guys there, wrote a great essay and medium about why the company didn't succeed. Mm-hmm, and yeah. part of why it didn't succeed is they put too much faith in supervised learning, like deep learning, um, to be able to solve all things, and they realized that it didn't, and it had been oversold. Um, you know, the other part of your question is what makes a successful robotic company. There haven't been a lot of them. Uh, maybe the most successful has been iRobot, um, or at least in the consumer domain, it's been the most successful. And that's because they built a good product that was easy to use, um, that was reliable, even though it wasn't perfect. Um, it wasn't, at least, even when it wasn't reliable, didn't cause much harm. Um, and, you know, paid a lot of attention to what people actually might use. Uh, there have been a lot of, Robotics companies that have overpromised. It's been a difficult, um, you know, year for robotics. I think several companies went out of business in the last twelve to eighteen months. Um, there haven't been a lot of successful robotics companies. Um, I think eventually there will be. I think everybody will have their own robot, just like they all have their own cell phone. You know, I think the potential market is huge, but the technology on. The software side has been lagging, you know, mm-hmm. that's where my company is trying to come in, is to, is to make it easier to make software that can build robots that you can actually count on.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you think that's a kind of worrying of singularity, or maybe one day we have a robots replace job, because that's worrying and for many people. Do you think this is a true statement to be considered? and? We
1: have... I think we're going to reconsider all of this over the next year or two yeah. um, be- because of COVID. So the the biggest argument for robots has always been that they could do things that we don't want people to be doing. Yeah. And that argument has suddenly actually grown, right? So we don't want humans to do door-to-door delivery right now. We would rather have robots do that because um, they're not going to be carriers of virus in the same way. Yeah. Um, and so there's actually going to be I think a bigger market for robotics as a consequence of, of all that has happened. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, we can have a huge employment problems. So a lot of, um, jobs in the, you know, service industry seem to be disappearing right now. And so, uh, it, it's a little hard to know where we're going to wind up. I think that, you know, we're going to have employment problems for a while. We're going to have some jobs that nobody wants to do that robots will be better. Um, you know, it'd be better to have robots do them. Um, it's going to be a very different world.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how are you predict in coming ten years, for example, uh, AI or robotics if from your eyes? In, in
1: ten years? Yes. I think about, robots will be a lot better in ten years than they are now, and you know, I think my company is going to play a part in that. Um, <clears throat> I think it's possible to build better, more robust software than exists, and we're working on that problem. I think that. Natural language will still not be solved in 10 years, but there'll be real progress in it. Um, I think that computer vision will be even better than it is right now. I think that kind of general purpose reasoning that a scientist does is still a ways away. You know, So we will still need scientists 10 years from now, maybe not a hundred years from now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we will still need writers 10 years from now. Um, we may not need fast food workers 10 years from now.
0: Mm-hmm. So if I ask you, where is innovation mostly mostly comes from, innovation?
1: It's a hard question. I mean, innovation comes from all different kinds of places all the time. I'm not sure there's, there, there's one answer to that. You know, sometimes it comes from the academy. Sometimes it comes from industry. Um, sometimes you have somebody from the academy comes up with an idea and makes a company out of it, as in Google. Mm-hmm. Um, innovation can come from many different places. Yeah. I, I think we want to foster a society that fosters innovation, but I don't. I don't think there's one magic formula for it.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you think ego is important for researcher?
1: Is ego important? Yeah. Uh, ego is a double-edged sword. I mean, sometimes it drives people forward, and sometimes it drives them to be harmful to themselves or others. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, I, I think ego is a motivator for humans it's not a motivator for AI systems um, and it'd be interesting as AI gets better and ego gets taken out of the picture to see whether things become more efficient mm-hmm. for now it's a pretty big motivator I and mean, most of the great contributions of the world are by people that have strong egos and confidence in themselves and desire to succeed
0: mm-hmm. so do you have any robots at your home or are you planning to have any robots in the future?
1: Uh, I don't have any deeply interesting ones at the moment, but um, I have some plans. Okay. I, w- I won't say more for now.
0: Okay. So in the next 100 years, what's something you wish for as a humanity in 100 years?
1: I hope that we run our affairs much better than we do now. I,
0: okay.
1: The last few years have been brutally depressing in terms of how governments have been run. The COVID thing is a very good example Mm -hmm. where most of the world's governments, not quite all, were grossly underprepared despite a fair amount of warning both a number of years ago and recently. Um, Almost everybody was slow to institute lockdowns when the writing seemed very clearly on the wall. I was writing about this stuff in early March trying to get the world to... To listen but nobody really wanted to listen people didn't want to change what they did um, and of course you know people thought that because certain things were low probability that they would you know save money on them and they shouldn't have and the cost have been enormous so you know the, the at, at the global level the political level decision making has been very poor mm. um and some of that comes from individual humans not making very good decisions um it's a reminder that good ai systems could actually make the world run more efficiently Mm -hmm. Um, at the same time we're not even close to being able to build those systems so you can imagine an ai system for example that would automatically monitor the world's preparedness for various kinds of situations and say you know you're actually underestimating this risk and you need to be better prepared for it but we don't really have the tools to build those things yet
0: Mm -hmm. and do you think it's coming down to politics and regulation with government to be equipped with this kind of technology to help in this kind well, of crisis? Well, there's two time. sides
1: of it. I mean, one is there are a lot of governments that I think are functioning poorly mm-hmm. right now. and The other is that AI could help if AI was better, but it's not really better yet. So I think we're going to need to make progress both on fairness, equity, and rationality in our governments, and we're going to need to make progress in our AI systems to have them be better guides to us about how to make good decisions.
0: Yeah. At the end of the podcast, I would like to thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you.
1: Thanks. It was a really interesting interview. Thanks so much for having me. Thank
0: you. Thank you.